You're listening to the podcast, So You Want to Be a Writer, with Valerie Koo and Allison Tate. Valerie is an author, journalist, and national director of the Australian Writers' Centre, which is one of the world's leading providers of online and classroom courses for people who want to get published and write with confidence. Alison Tate is a freelance writer, blogger, and author of the best-selling series The Mapmaker Chronicles. She has more than 20 years' professional writing experience. Each week, they explore the world of writing, publishing, and blogging to bring you news and opportunities, advice on how to succeed in the world of writing, interviews with top writers, and much more. With students enrolling from all over the world, you can find out more about the Australian Writer Centre at writercentre.com.au. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 131 of So You Want to Be a Writer. My name's Valerie Koo and I'm here with Alison Tate. How are you, Al? Uh, I'm all right. Um, Just all yes. right? Well, you know, I'm about as good as I can be in, under the circumstances, which is, <laughs> you know, just normal. Yeah, what are, the, what are the circumstances? Okay, just normal circumstances. Fair yeah, enough. like I'm, you know, I don't, I don't feel like we need to be bouncing with joy and happiness every day. It's not how I roll. I'm content yes. with where I'm at. I'm busy. I've got, you know, lots of things on. I'm almost finished my structural. I can't even say it. I've <laughs> almost finished my structural edit um, oh. on my current project, so that's very exciting. I'm pretty happy about that. It was quite funny, you know. It took me three days to rewrite chapter one because oh, there was wow. a lot of, you know just a lot of thinking and tweaking and whatever. Yes. And then I like whipped through to, you know, <laughs> chapter 10 yep. in the, on the fourth day. So it just goes to show you wow. that there are, there are always going to be blocks. There's always going to be roadblocks when you're doing something like that. Yes. And also the other thing I find really fascinating is how incredibly draining structural edit can be. It's much more draining than writing much more. Yes. Cause you have to think I find- a lot more too. Well, you kind of, it's like a, you've got this massive puzzle and you've got to try and work out, you know, you've got to, there, there's certain things that you need to achieve in the, in the edit. And so you have to think about the best possible way to do that without upsetting the structure of the puzzle too much, you know, so that you're demanding an entire rewrite. So yeah, there's a lot of thinking involved and it's, it's because I find writing very energizing. Like it's really, you know, I get so excited even on the days when it feels like concrete. Um, <laughs> but it's a very energizing process writing, but yes. editing is draining. It's really it interesting. Draining. So when do you think you'll finish your structural edit? Um, well, it's it's due on Friday. Oh, and, okay. Um, and I'll be lunching on Friday. Oh, so yes. I have to finish by Thursday. <laughs> awesome. We'll actually be lunching together, won't we? We so. will. I'm so excited. <laughs> I think there might be some drinks involved even. Oh, there might be. There might yes. be. And you know what? I have to tell you, Valerie, that I've had a few suggestions via our community for my yes. karaoke signature song. So, you know, we so may what are they? What are they? Friends. So if anyone missed it in the last episode, <laughs> we discussed our signature songs at karaoke and Alison couldn't think of hers, really. No, so. I don't, it's because I don't have one. I okay, don't have so what the were the suggestions? Song. Well, um, somebody suggested Call Me Owl, which, of course, was, <laughs> you know, probably yes. always going to happen. Yes. Um, and then I also had a suggestion of Total Eclipse of the Heart. Oh, yeah. Which, mm. Yeah, which could be an option, could mm. be an option. So I don't know. I've got a few. I've got a few options to try out. So I'd, I'd like more though. So if you do have any thoughts about my signature song, ideally you would get them to me by Friday, just in yes. case. Awesome. And then um, I'll see if I can entice entice Al over to karaoke after lunch. 
It'll have to be a very, very long lunch, Val. So well, sometimes they are. Anyway. Yeah. Um, what are you doing? What am I doing? Gee, well, I'm recovering a little bit because I spent the last four days, like from nine in the morning to sometimes six, seven, eight at night till, uh, at a conference. So it was all very, oh, very that's, um, that's, yeah, wow. and very busy, and uh, but it was good. But you know, now I'm in recovery mode. I think. So you're also drained. A little bit drained, yes. But yeah, so um, it's going to be one of those. <laughs> it's going to be one of those podcasts, then, isn't it? Right. One of those. I episodes. hope you people aren't expecting too much. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> I'm sure oh, we'll, right. deliver, we'll deliver anyway. So we want we to give a sh- shout out to. Angela Dawn Short because she uploaded a photo onto her Instagram of a cute little puppy while writing, um, uh, you know, who was there while she was writing. And uh, she said in her caption, seriously, this pup has my heart and makes writing time so distracting. But I did write a whopping 1,200 words of a very tense scene. My Mm. eyebrows feel like they are knitted together for being so tense as I write it. I think I'll listen to Val and Al for some comic relief as they always (laughs) make me laugh like a fool in front of people at the gym. (laughs) Goodness me. I think she's talking really about you, Val, because, you know, you probably sang fame and she laughed hysterically. (laughs) I reckon that's what happened. No, no, I'm not funny. So, um, (laughs) (laughs) I don't know, Val, you're pretty funny sometimes. (laughs) Anyway, thank you so much, Angela. Um, That just made me laugh out loud when I read that Uh, but it's kind of cute and I think that it's you've got a gorgeous writing companion in your little puppy Uh, Mm. and um, like I love writing with my little cat next to me so I'd just like to say that that is another member of team writers with dogs yeah my my team is getting bigger my team is growing it's all I can say my team is growing like do people how do they join your team how do they do oh, that? We have a hashtag. Oh, yeah. Okay. We have our own hashtag. You can be on my team. If you are a writer with a dog, please be on my team. So if you're on Instagram or, you know, Facebook or whatever, uh, and you have a picture of your dog or whatever, you just go hashtag writers with dogs and I'll be having a look at it because that's, I, I just feel like there's this horrible cliche that writers have cats. And, you know, I just find that my writing companion Procrasty Pup is so valuable to me as a, you know, friend, companion, person to walk around the block with. It's, yes. it's, it's awesome. Hmm. Fantastic. Okay. Hashtag writers with dogs. Hashtag writers with dogs. All right. So <laughs> shall we move on to the world of oh, writing let's... and publishing this week? Yes. Right, what have you I got for me? You, well, I believe oh, you me. have something for me. me. Yes. It's me, I do. Well, this is a really interesting thing. Now, Tanya McCartney is an Australian author. She's a children's author, and she has yes. a terrific blog. It, it's incredibly cute. It's got fabulous – she's also an illustrator. So Very it's got cute. these gorgeous little illustrations all over it's just divine. It's a lovely place to be. But she's very, very clever. And I think we have talked about her in the past, but it was probably many, many episodes ago. Um, but I follow Tanya on Twitter, and she sent this link out last week that just made me go, What? It was a, it's an Ask Tanya, so she has a great sort of Q&A session where you can send in questions to her and she will answer them. And the question was, what's with these book awards that authors can buy? Are they worth it? And I was like, 
Sorry. So I had to, of course, read the question. So the question was, hi, Tanya, I'm an emerging author and I'm in the middle of self-publishing a little chapter book. I was wondering what's with these book awards that authors can buy? Are they worth it? I'm not sure how they work. Now, I was fascinated by this process. Um, So Tanya calls them the Vanity Book Award and they are basically a thing where you can pay to be shortlisted and then to win an award that you can then put on your book or on your blog. So you're essentially buying yourself, you know, a gold star, which I just find, I mean, I I don't understand why anyone would do it and I don't really understand, you know, it's quite expensive, I believe. There's a lot of money involved. But then I thought about it a bit more and I realised um, because Tanya links through to to a, a, a link on salon.com where she talks about which talks about Vanity Book Awards. It's an older award. But one of the things they talk about there is that, you know, there's an organisation called the National Book Foundation and it will present its annual National Book Awards they're talking about. And the fact of the matter is that, you know, this is this this sounds like you have to say National Book Foundation, National Book Awards sounds like a very legitimate thing. But as it turns out, it is actually a vanity award. People have paid for them. But readers wouldn't know different. And this is where I thought it's just a very deceptive marketing practice. It's a way for um, organizations to make money from authors who are willing to pay for these things. And I think, you know, on Amazon or whatever, it would be a very deceptive marketing thing because readers don't know that the National Book Foundation yes. is not, you know, a legitimate thing. So yeah. uh, what do you what do you think? I mean, uh, okay, I mean, I've obviously been living under a rock because I – <laughs> The, the salon article is a 2009 article, so mm. and I'd never really heard of this practice, but I'm sure you, being across all of these things, would have heard of it, and you can now, <laughs> and you can now tell me a little bit more about it and why people do it. Well, um, one thing that I do know, because I'm not surprised that there are book awards that you need to pay for, because literally just mm, yesterday, or was it the day before when I was at this conference, because, you know, I told you I was at this conference, there was a speaker who is in the wine industry, and he was talking about the fact that a huge number of very famous wine awards, so when you go to the bottle shop and you look at the award on the label, a huge number of those um, uh, are you have to pay for. And in fact, he ran a wine company and uh, he talked about the fact that um, for a particular wine, he got approached by a major, major, major wine organization, which you will have heard of for Mm -hmm. sure, a major Mm -hmm. wine name. And they said to him, we want to put you in our top whatever list of awards. That's $20,000. And... Mm -hmm. Also, just in the last week, so it's very timely that you're bringing this up, I received an email from a magazine on – it was a magazine that focused on learning and development and they wanted to list us in the top 10 learning and development providers, as in list the Australian Writers' Centre, in one of the top 10 learning providers in Australia and – or it might have been the world. I can't remember now. And Mm, Probably um, the world. (laughs) But that would have – there was a cost attached to it. So, you know – I mean, they, they tried to couch it in a nice way saying that, you know, you, you should support the magazine and here is a um, advertising package or something. But, um, yeah, it's, it's unsurprising. 
But as Tanya points out, and this is quite an interesting thing, she like she says, you know, many awards, uh, literary awards, even the credible, important ones have entry fees, and this is true, mm-hmm. but this is to cover the cost of a reading and assessment team. Prizes are correspondingly decent. There are only a handful of categories as opposed to, you know, a lot of the vanity awards will have like a category for every single thing you can ever think of. Yeah. And here's the biggest difference, only a small handful shortlist and win, and that's what makes it prestigious. As mm-hmm. she points out, if everyone wins, how is that a prestigious thing, let alone a win? Um, anyway, so I think it's definitely worth, you know, having a read. Oh, we'll put it this way. Have a read of this just so that you know what these things are if you've never heard of them. Yes. Um, and check out the rest of Tanya's blog because she does have some fantastic, you know, her Ask Tanya section is really very comprehensive and excellent. For sure. And, of course, we'll put the links to mm-hmm. all of these things yes. in the show notes and you'll mm-hmm. find that at soyouwanttobearwriter.com.au. Now, I found an interesting link on The Guardian called How to Write a Man Booker Novel. Six shortlisted authors share their secrets. And it talks to a bunch of the, you know, man booker shortlisted authors, including Madeline Tien and David, I can't say his last name, Zaleh and Deborah Levy. Uh, and, you know, a bunch of authors who have written shortlisted books just to to talk about where their ideas have come from and, um, uh, you know, their writing process. And I always think it's useful to learn from the best or learn from shortlisted authors or whatever. So it's definitely worth having a look at as to, you know, what was the inspiration behind some of these novels? Um, I mean, do you find that you learn from when other authors talk, talk about their writing process? Oh, definitely. I got, you know, it's one of the reasons I do this podcast, Val. <laughs> Just so but I can even, ask them. <laughs> even when you go, oh my God, that would never work for me. Oh, definitely. Because, but I, I think that you can learn something from everyone. Like I'm reading through the secrets of the man bookers and some of them are sort of as impenetrable as some of the man booker winning novels, I feel. <laughs> but but I think what's interesting about it, well, you know, they kind of yeah. are. Um, yeah. I think that um, what's interesting about it is that um, people are always, you know, like, oh, oh, where do you get your ideas from? Where do ideas come from? I don't understand. Where do I get an idea from a novel from? And I think what's really interesting about these kinds of of uh, articles and these kinds of secrets is that they come from such interesting and varied. I mean, you know, you know, they come from conversations. They come from something that someone's read. They come from yeah. a newspaper article. They come from, um, and then somebody takes that very small notion, that tiny sentence, that you know, strange little idea, whatever it is, yeah. and turns it into you know, six hundred pages of amazingly crafted, you know, writing. And I, I think that that for me is is such an interesting process, and um, I. And it's such a difficult thing to explain, and I think that that's it's always worth reading you know, someone who really knows how to put words together, trying to explain where they got an idea from. I think it's a really interesting process just to see how these things work because, you know, you go to kind of literary luncheons or to, you know, panels or writers' festivals, and you can guarantee, you can guarantee that when they do the audience Q&A, someone is going to stand up and say, where do you get your ideas from? 
Yeah, like for it's sure. Just, it's a given. It's same thing in a school talk. It's the same. It doesn't matter where you go. Someone is going to want to know. So if you are an author and you have a novel and you're writing a debut novel or whatever, you need a good story. You need to be able to stand up and say to people, this is where the idea came from because they want to know. And it, and it's a, it's a really, um, it can be a very difficult thing to explain. And mm. people, you know, I often say to kids, you know, ideas are all around you and they look at me and as if to say, yeah, no. Nah. <laughs> I'm not not getting that. And then I have to explain and I explain where I got the idea from the Mapmaker Chronicles and I explain Mm. how I drew in a whole range of different things that I, that I love and that I, you know, that I, you know, research and all sorts of different things and, and trying to explain how that comes together is a really interesting process in itself, I think. But you know what? You're so right in that you need to have a good story or you need to be able to know what to say, particularly Mm -hmm. if you want people to buy your next novel because they might have come to that literary lunch or been interested in you for whatever reason. They liked your book Mm -hmm. or in the case of these six authors in this link, which we'll put in the show notes, um, there's hype around the fact that they have been shortlisted, right? Mm -hmm. So immediately when you're shortlisted for the Man Booker, you come to the attention of people and and they, you're more interesting to them. Um, but if you then don't deliver <laughs> once somebody has made a connection with you, um, you you're risking what might happen in the future in terms of their uh, what them wanting to read your second book. And I'm um, remembering specifically a man booker shortlisted author, and I've mentioned this before, uh, but it might have been some episodes ago, that I went to a literary dinner with a man booker shortlisted author who uh, when her book was shortlisted, it went nuts. Like, I mean, she's, it sold its socks off, you know, it around mm-hmm. the world. It just sold ridiculous number of copies. And I was meeting her at the dinner just after she released the book after that. Okay. Right. Yeah. So she released the book after that. And because of her huge success of the first one, it got published in 13 countries. It, you know, it was, it had a lot of um, backing behind the publisher. But what became apparent to me at the dinner was that she was just rude and awful. And. <gasps> Yeah, I mean, she just didn't behave well and she was just rude to everyone. She refused to take, to you know, take photos with any of her fans who wanted to, um, you know, take photos with her. She just, you know, and that's fine if you don't, if you just don't want to take photos, but she didn't explain that in a particularly nice way and she was disingenuous and hypocritical in her mm. behaviour. Mm. And... Mm, not to then, put too fine a point on it. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, the way you, you – just because you get that success once, people aren't going to stay with you if you're not nice or if you um, disappoint them or, or whatever. And um, and this wasn't just a one-off incident. It was a sort of – it was a pattern of behaviour. And mm. then so it was unsurprising then, even though her publisher had published her in 13 countries, multiple languages, and um, the book had a lot of backing – she, it, she, at that time, she confessed it had sold three hundred copies, and then oh. I, and I felt like saying, well, "Have you looked at yourself and wondered oh. why?" Oh. <laughs> Like, I, I, do you think you should tell us what you really think, Val? I'm feeling like you're back here. <laughs> why do I want to buy a book from somebody who's like rude and you know? Well, technically, it should come down to the book. Like that's what people would say to you. They would say to you, "But Valerie, it should come down to the book, and but, you should buy but, the book based on absolutely. how fabulously 
Absolutely yeah. true. But in my mind, she had pissed off enough people to make them not want to, you know, promote her book. If she <laughs> was nice, I would have been out there saying, oh, my God, you should buy this book. <laughs> Even yeah, though yeah. Okay. if it's a great book, I don't necessarily want to tell people to go buy it if the person writing the book is not a nice person. Mm, okay. See the importance <laughs> of actually. Well, I think I think it just comes down to that whole thing we often talk about. With you know, I don't I don't think that you necessarily have to be something you're not. If you're not a nice person, don't you know you don't have to go there. But what you do have to be, I think, particularly if you are if you're going to do public work like that, promoting your book, talks, Twitter, you know, social media of any level, you have to try and put your best possible self forward because unfortunately it does come down to connections and it does come down to how people respond, not just to your work, but to you. And I think that that's, um, it's something that you've always got to have in, in your mind. And unfortunately, if, if you agree to go along to a thing of any kind, you know, be it a lunch, be it a talk, be it a school visit, be it whatever, then you are there as, as a, a public version of yourself. And so you have to, you know, it's a performance, whatever you do, whichever way you go. Yeah. Um, and I'm not saying that you have to be all dramatic and be something that you're not, but you do have to remember that you are there in a public capacity, you know, yeah. and so you have to try, you know, even on the worst possible days, you have to try to present the best possible version of yourself because people do make decisions based on how they respond to you as a yes. person. And that's yeah. right. It wasn't like a private Listen dinner or anything. <laughs> no, yeah. it wasn't like it's in someone's home. It wasn't a private thing. This was a public event. You know what I mean? This was mm. a, a an official event. So, yeah, yeah it, it, I what you do in your private time is 100% fine. Um, but, yes, this was at a public event. Mm. And what do right. you think, Al? Let me ask you this question. Yes. Would you think – like, because you know, public stuff is not for everyone, and and I totally get that. Like, it's a, it's hard, and it's not, um, it's not a natural thing for a lot of writers who can be very introverted. Yes, are you better not going if it's if it's not if it's really not your thing? Are you better not going? What do you um, think? I'm just going to put mean, you on the spot with that question. Yeah, sure. I mean, if you know that you are going to be rude to people, yeah, of course you're better off not going. <laughs> I mean, do you think she knew that? Do you think she knew she was going to go and be rude to people? Do you feel she, or do you think she just sort of got there and thought, "I can't believe I'm doing this again, and I'm I'm over it." Um, <clears throat> she probably did think that. I mean, maybe she did think that, but I think that if you've made a commitment to something, you mm. follow it through. Mm. Um, yeah. So you're right. She should have said no if if there was an inkling that she wasn't gonna. You know, if she wasn't obvious, she obviously didn't have the maturity to act professionally. Yeah, so I guess you know the the thing is, if you're going to agree to do public things, you have to you know develop that public persona to get through them. Really, yeah, it's not that hard. It's just being polite, best version of yourself. Yeah, that's all. Yeah, and it's not for very long either. You know. Mm. Yeah. Anyway. Anyway, <laughs> goodness me, we really went down a road there, didn't we? Yeah. <laughs> Let's move on to something else. I found a link in um, uh, in a uh, unusually named site called New Me, spelt N I U M E, hmm. unusual, and it's called Deadly Sins of Newbie Authors. And I oh. thought this was um, good because it has some interesting um, 
tips like, uh, first of all, you uh, shouldn't hide within social media because sometimes when, a new, you, when you are a new author, you are told by people like us that you need to build your author platform, which is 100% true. But, of course, you need a balance. If you are going to – you need to set aside the time to build your author platform, but you should also make sure that you don't go down a rabbit hole with your social media when you should be writing. So mm. it, there can be a temptation saying, oh, but I need to build my author platform. Yes, you do, but make sure your time is defined. The other well, thing- let's just talk about that for a second yeah. because I, I noticed in the uh, Build Your Author Platform Facebook group, um, which is the group that graduates of the Build Your Author Platform course join um there was a bit of discussion about that about whether or not social media was interfering with the writing time of of writers and i and it's it's something that i think that um it's it's a real lesson to learn is that balance of you know what you need to do and because i think what happens is that you know realistically the social media aspect of any author's day can be done very quickly. It can yes. be done in you know a very short space of time. You can line a few tweets up. You can get on and sort of have a bit of a conversation with people. Put something on Facebook, and you know there's you done for the day. And technically, that takes about twenty minutes altogether. Yes. Um, however, however, there is however. a big however with that. Um, social media is a massive rabbit hole, and once you get onto social media, like if you start tweeting with people, suddenly you find yourself, you know, like half an hour's gone, and you're still there talking about cats or whatever it is you're talking <laughs> about. Um, or on Facebook, it can be, you know, the conversations can get quite, um, quite involved quite quickly, and you can yes. be there for a while. Or you find yourself visiting a whole range of author sites, or you're doing whatever it is that you're doing, and suddenly the time has gone. And the other thing that people were talking about was the fact that social media is so. Fun Past. And so kind of like it's a it's a whole – I personally think of it as a whole different part of your creative brain in some ways of how you're going to present, you know, your stuff for that particular day. Mm. And that can be very distracting as well. So I think it comes down to um, re- really being – very careful with with your time with your timetabling. I know that you know I talk about my schedules and my timetables and things, and people think it's so non-creative. Alison, you're so non-creative, mm-hmm. um, but it is the only way to get these things done. And I think that if you are working on something, if you are writing something, that clearly has to be your priority. So mm. you need to get that done first. I, I like do the writing first if you if that's what needs to be done, and then whatever time you may have left over from your window that, of whatever it is that you're doing. You know, then you can go and do like a couple of tweets or whatever it is that you're going to do. Um, but the the writing has got to be the priority always. Yeah, for sure, without Just, a doubt. Yeah. It's easy to get distracted. Um, mm. Another one that I like from this list is, um, and the list is mistakes of newbie authors. It's not being supportive of others or humble in success, which is so true. Sometimes people. Um, and fortunately, I think they're in the minority, but I know a handful, only a handful of people who feel that like they're in competition with other authors mm-hmm. and they don't yeah. want to promote other authors or other authors in a similar, you know, a similar genre or similar level. And they are, um, I'm thinking of someone, you know, specifically that I know who's like this and they won't, they just won't do it. They will promote the big authors who are, um, 
you know, um, at a different level to them, but they won't help the people who are their peers. And that is so <laughs> sad and just so short-sighted because oh, – It's incredibly short-sighted. Yeah, I, I, I just I – I'm so frustrated by that sort of attitude. I mean, you know, like – I just feel it's that whole thing of if everybody supports each other, the whole group rises. I mean, we've talked about this before. It's, um, and I think that if you are in a group of, you know, authors who are all about the same, you know, like, you know, however many books or, or, or not published yet or whatever it is that your group is, wherever your peers are, if you support each other, we are talking about readers here. Yeah. And, you know, in, in my particular area, we are talking about, you know, kids who read and we are talking about parents who are constantly looking yeah. for books for kids who read. And so, or they've got reluctant readers and they are desperately looking for the next book for reluctant readers. So mm. from my perspective, the best thing I can do is get as many books as possible into the hands of all those people. And if those books are my books, then awesome. But if they're someone else's books, then that is also awesome. And also yes. by promoting the work of other people, you just, you know, you, you, you buy association uh, promoting your, your own work as well because you become that person. So yeah. I set up an entire group on Facebook called Your Kids Next Read. Mm. It's for parents who are looking for books. I promote other authors in that group all the time. Other yeah. authors promote other authors in that group all the time. And it yeah. is a great way to promote Australian authors within a group that actually is reading and buying books for kids. I, yeah, it just, fantastic. It's a no-brainer for me. So if you're someone who won't get involved in something like that or worse still, gets involved in something like that only to promote your own links, mm. you know, uh, you are gone. You are dead to me. I just delete you from my group <laughs> immediately. <laughs> just don't but, do it. Don't do it. It, yeah, it's 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 just silly because you're so right. When everyone supports each other, the entire group rises. But not yep. everyone seems to think that way. I know a particular okay. author who will ask other authors for, you know, reviews on Amazon or Goodreads or whatever, and mm. they will provide those – they will write those reviews, but she hasn't written a single review on any of theirs. And it's just silly, you know what I mean? It's and and it's it's been a period of time now since a book comes has come out, and it's just not doing great because the other authors see through it eventually, and eventually also stop promoting her, even though they did support her initially because you know that they were doing the right thing, but they realised it was a one way street. Mm-hmm. Anyway. So mm-hmm. definitely be supportive of others. There is enough to go around, absolutely enough to go around. Yeah. All right. Let's move on to our giveaway this week. Oh, what have we got? Yes, we have four books. Yeah, four? four. Yes, four That's books outrageous. to give away this week. It's a pack of four books, which you can either keep for yourself or you might, with Christmas coming up, if some of the books you're not so into them, you will, you know, re-gift them. Mm. Use them as Christmas gifts. They'll never know. Exactly. They'll never know unless they listen to this podcast and hear the (laughs) books that I'm about to mention, (laughs) which are How to Spot a Hipster (laughs) by Jeremy Kassar, Second Chance Town by Carly Lane, 
Maggie's Kitchen by Caroline Beecham and Challenge by Paul Daly. So to win oh, the pack. that's a good mix. It's a very good that's mix. the whole family covered right there. Exactly, exactly. Fabulous. So have a, um, make sure you enter at writercentre.com.au slash win and entries close Monday the 31st October. So writercentre.com.au slash win. And if you're listening to this podcast in the future, Go to that URL anyway because there will be something else that we are giving away. This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre, a world leader in writing courses. If you'd like to get paid to see the world, our popular five-week course in travel writing will show you how. From Dubai to Dubbo, learn the steps to bringing destinations to life, as well as how to research and plan your itineraries and exactly what you need to do to approach a travel editor so they will publish your article. All this with a few hours of study each week. You'll enjoy the convenience of online learning and have your very own tutor to provide personal feedback on your writing and answer your questions. Find out more at writerscentre.com.au slash travel writing course. All right. Are you ready for our word of the week, Al? I am. I'm so ready, Val. I, I really, I know that you think I'm joking, but I'm not. I, I'm seriously ready. <laughs> this um, this word, it comes uh, as a suggestion from one of our listeners, Sarah Leov. Oh, and uh, she has said, why don't you try the word vituperative? Mm, why not? Yes, vituperative. That's V-I-T-U-P-E-R-A-T-I-V-E, vituperative. Do you ever use it? Well, it's not the kind of word that you'd necessarily use in everyday conversation, no. but I but I have used it in the past in writing things. I think it's a great word. I just like the sound of it, if nothing it else. It does sound good, doesn't it? Mm. Yeah. So do you know what it means? Well, you must because well, yeah. you've used it. <laughs> I do. I do, now. yeah. But, you know, do you want me to tell you or are you going to tell me? I'll tell you. All right. <laughs> it means bitter and abusive. It sort of sounds a little bit like it, doesn't it? Mm, so it means it bitter and abusive. So you might say a sentence like Donald Trump uttered a vituperative outburst during his election campaign. Say. So you vituperative. Say that, yeah. Yes. Now, if you're going to use vituperative as the word of the week, make sure that you ping us or tag us on social media so we can see how you've used it in your blog post or in your social media post uh, so we can see it in action. Mm. All right. Shall we move on to our writer in residence? Yes, time? please. Let's do that. So our writer-in-residence could actually be classified as a songwriter-in-residence as well. because mm, We're very on trend with that then, aren't we? Very. So, yeah, I mean, last week we had Richard Roxburgh, who spends some of his time as an actor and now has written a children's book and he also illustrated it. Well, mm. now we have a just as multi-talented person because she is not only a songwriter and a musician, she is now a novelist. So, do you know who we're talking about? Um, I do, Val, yeah, but I'm not going to spoil the surprise. <laughs> I don't want to steal your thunder, so, you know, 
Make your announcement. <laughs> okay. So it's Holly Throsby and Holly Throsby, of course, is the um, wonderful musician and songwriter and um, she has a, she has released four critically acclaimed solo albums, a collection of original children's songs and has now got her debut novel out, Goodwood, published by Alan and Unwin. So let's have a listen to Holly. Holly Throsby is a songwriter, musician and novelist from Sydney and she has released four critically acclaimed solo albums, a collection of original children's songs and an album as part of the band Seeker, Lover, Keeper with Sarah Blasco and Sally Seltman. Holly's debut novel, Goodwood, was published in October 2016. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Now... Just for some of the people who um, have not yet got their hands on the book because it's only recently out, tell us what Goodwood is about. Um, Well, Goodwood is about two people who go missing from a small town in New South Wales, um, the town of Goodwood. Um, It's set in 1992 um, and it's narrated by a girl called Jean Brown who was 17 when these disturbing events take place in her town. Um, first of all, the coolest girl in town, Rosie White, goes missing just from her bedroom. And then exactly a week later, the local butcher, whose name is Bart McDonald, goes fishing on the lake and never comes home. So um, I guess Goodwood is in part about uh, the fates of Rosie and Bart, um, but it's also a portrait of a town kind of in this anxious, tense, grieving kind of time, wondering what's happened to them. And it's also um, Jean's own story. And how in the world did you come up with this unique idea? (laughs) Um, I don't know how unique it is. I think think there's definitely books and stories about – about missing people. Sure. I think that I'm, I'm drawn to it. I was drawn to the subject matter because, um, I mean, I'm a big fan of, of crime and mystery novels that I, I enjoy reading them, but I feel like it is quite an, a sort of Australian thing, this narrative of, of people going missing. I think probably because we have this ginormous continent, which is quite underpopulated, you know, in, relatively speaking to other, other continents. Um, and there's a lot of places that people can get lost. Um, but I don't know, I was inspired by newspaper articles that I read. I was inspired by some real life events, um, and very drawn to a small town setting to kind of explore various issues with relationships and psychology and things like this. Now, this is your debut novel, but you are not a stranger to writing because you are an acclaimed songwriter and musician. So I'd just like to backtrack a little bit in your career and talk about your songwriting uh, and then lead up to the book because you've been nominated for four ARIA awards, including two for Best Female Artist and one for Best Children's Album, and you've toured here and overseas. Just tell us maybe um, how it all began. Like when did you first start writing songs? Um, I first started writing songs really young, like about when I was about 10 or 11 because I started playing guitar around eight, I think. And I mean, from then on, I guess you're always kind of making stuff up as a, when you're, you know, a young, a young kid with an instrument, like you're always kind of just playing around with stuff. But I, I remember I wrote my first song when I was about 10 and just really enjoyed that 
whole thing. Like I really wanted to be a musician. I really wanted to release albums. And all through my teenage years, I was just, I would get home from school. I had a tape recorder, like a boombox style tape recorder that I would just record my songs on and, you know, to, in order to remember them and, and keep writing them. And I've got like a box of these cassettes <laughs> that are probably just full of terrible songs. But it was just what I was really, really driven to do, especially by the time I was in year 12. I was just totally kind of obsessed with it. Um, and by that stage, I'd met other friends who were interested in songwriting as well. So I think that really helps when you're young to sort of have people to to play stuff to and to mm. feedback from. Um, it's probably what young writers, prose writers these days get from the internet, which wasn't really around then, mm. <laughs> but um, like in terms of blogs or whatever. But, yeah, and then I guess the whole time I was also a very – keen English student. I did three in English for the HSC and then I went on to major in English at university for my bachelor's degree. Um, so I was always interested in reading and writing essays on books and reading critically and, you know, dissecting narratives and working out, you know, what, what I liked about them, I guess. So mm. it, it was always an ambition that I had had that I'd like to write a book, but songwriting, just sort of seemed to draw me in a lot more during my 20s and I started making albums and releasing them and touring and I was just incredibly driven to write yeah. songs. Um, and then my focus turned, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> so when you uh, were creating your albums, when you're thinking of a series of songs that's going to go in them, and you, how do you approach writing a song? Do you actually think of the words first or a, a, the, a story or, or phrases or do you actually start with the notes um, well, p uh, people write songs differently, but but mostly uh, people would start with melody. So we, either you have an instrument and people generally do, um, and then, you know, you find a chord progression that you like, you're humming along, and you find a melody that you like. That melody might become the verse, and then you find a change for that to become a chorus. And you, you know, so it's, it's a very meandering proce process of just trying different things and seeing if a melody kind of grabs you, I guess. Um, and then sometimes a lyric will come out straight along with, with the melody and other times less, you know, less quickly. And then for me it's always been a process of, you know, usually going with some of those initial ideas which would plant a seed as to the topic of the song, um, which is often quite instinctive and, and unconscious for me. And then, you know, I would then spend however long walking around the supermarket or the park with this song in my head <laughs> and I would just gradually kind of write lyrics until they're finished. I often, it often takes me, you know, a little while. Mm. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a really, it's a strange thing to do much like any creative process. Mm. Um, but you know, I found prose writing, it's not that different really. I guess you sit down with a blank page and you start trying to meander your way through. I mean, some songwriters definitely think of, I've been working with Sally Seltman, um, because we're we're doing more Seeker Lover Keeper writing at the moment. She really likes to think of a topic for a song and then go from there, and that's different really? to how I work. It's really I find that really interesting, and so we're getting some interesting things by discussing topics before we start and stuff like this. So it, it depends on it depends on the writer, I think. Yeah. So now you have released Goodwood, and let's just talk about the process of making that happen. At what point did you think, oh, I'm going to write a novel now, which is very very different <laughs> to writing a song much much longer process I imagine um so yeah how did that happen 
Well, it was, as I said, it was something that I wanted to do for a long time. And I got to a point with songwriting that I think I felt a little spent and I'd been touring a lot. Um, and you know, for a couple of years there was touring on the back of sort of three diff- very different projects, my solo record, the kids album and seek love and keep us. So I was, I was quite tired and I felt when I got home sort of and finished that all up, I, I was thinking about songwriting and I just wasn't interested anymore. Wow. Something about it. I don't know why I just, something about it felt like it was gone for me and I started working instead with prose and just writing these small kind of vignettes um, of ideas that I was having for Goodwood Um, and it was those vignettes that ended up kind of blending their way into a story. Mm. How did did you blend them into a story because were they separate or did you write them with the intention of blending them into a longer story at some point? How did that all work? Well, I knew that I wanted a longer story. I've never been a big reader of short stories. It's just not it's just not not a medium that I'm drawn to. Although I think some are exquisite. I just I, I generally like to have a, a book a whole book to read. Yeah. So I I knew that I that's what I wanted to produce because the whole time I was just very driven by what kind of story would I want to read. That was sort of a lot of where Goodwood came from. Um and the vignettes were all in the voice of Jean. So I, I did have my narrator really early on and I had my setting really early on in terms of the town. I could just see it and I could feel her. And so they were about nothing. They were about dogs playing or about, you know, they were about things that were, were not really to do with the story in the end. But it just gave a feeling for her and who she was and as I started to think about her, her relationship with her mum, for example, um, her relationship with her grandparents and things like that, um, that kind of basis gave me quite a clear picture of her and her family structure and where she lived. And I realised that I wanted, I, I had these ideas about these missing people in the town and that she could she could be the one to tell that story. So it was just a, it was, I mean, this was months of just having it in the back of my mind and playing around with it. And once I'd gotten all of that in a visual way in my head, mm. I sort of really set off. And the first chapter of Goodwood is quite similar to the first, the very first draft chapter that I wrote. Right. So when you decided that you had enough brewing in your head and you were ready to go, did you have some kind of plan as in, um, I'm going to achieve a certain number of words per day or per week or whatever, or I'm going to do this in X number of months. You know, did you have some kind of structure to your writing? I did, and I did because I was pregnant. And so I, I thought to myself, okay, I was very newly pregnant when I started, when I wrote that first chapter, um, maybe not, I was about eight or nine weeks or something. So I knew that I had this due date ahead of me (laughs) and that I wanted to finish, I wanted to finish my first draft by the time my, my baby came. Um, which I think is, it would turn out to be a really good timeframe for me. That was quite intensive working because, and, and, you know, judging by the, my first few weeks, I decided that 4,000 words a week was a good goal to set myself. Um, and I sometimes met that goal, and sometimes there was one week where I doubled that goal, you know, when the story really started taking off and I was really excited about it, I just was so obsessed that I didn't really do anything else, um, which is a good thing to do when you're pregnant because, you know, like it's you get to sit down. I had a nice room in the front of my house um, with a window and, 
you know, I wasn't, it was a, it was very much what I wanted to be doing physically at that time as well was Mm. to be writing and not kind of traveling the world on stages with my guitar. Mm. Um, so yeah, I, I, that was my goal and that was my time frame, and I, I managed it within a few weeks of her being born. <laughs> wow, <laughs> awesome. So you mentioned in your bio your interest in small towns and that setting plays a big part in Goodwood. Did the idea for the plot come from the setting or vice versa or did how did that evolve? Um, it kind of it kind of came from the setting in that I knew I wanted to explore this notion of people being missing within a sort of palpable community. And I wanted there to be, I liked the idea of having it just in the, in the past slightly, like, you know, in the early nineties is enough in the past. So it's information is spreading through, you know, conversations, people overhearing things, people actually calling each other on a landline and mm-hmm. it's a more organic spread of information. But I wanted to sort of explore that thing where everybody knows everybody in this situation. So it's not a kind of anonymous big city story where you've got a policeman who has no idea who these people are or you've got, mm. you know, witnesses who've never who have no idea who these people are. Like I wanted it all to, to have that feeling um, the Goodwood has of having, I think as Jean's Nan says, a higher density of acquaintanceship. And I did quite a lot of research about, you know, crime in small towns. Mm. And it's an, it's really interesting. I, I learned a lot about that. And I think one thing that's quite striking for me was secrecy around crime in smaller communities because generally perpetrators are very much known by victims of crime um and by other people and so there's a there's a feeling of I don't know if that's necessarily it could be out of fear it could be trying to protect someone in your family or whatever but there tends to be more of a tradition of people keeping stuff to themselves and dealing with things in their own personal way violence for example being a kind of legitimate way to work out personal problems that might not be as acceptable in bigger city landscapes, you know, things like that, which I I found really interesting to explore. Um, And the idea of having missing people to me is it's a terrifying thought. Um, But I wanted, you know, I I think the thing about Goodwood as well is it is kind of a low-key comedy in a lot of ways because Jean's outlook on the world is quite wry and quite, and she's young and so it sort of distills a lot of these more serious dark themes with her kind of idiosyncratic kind of humor I guess Mm-mm. so did you know what was going to happen you, like your story when you started writing or did it emerge while you were writing no I didn't I didn't know what was going to happen mm. um which was exciting I think it's, it was really exciting for me <laughs> I read I read quite a lot about um authors and whether they do or do not know what's happening and there's a lot of difference in the way people approach this. I just read essays or, you know, by authors discussing their process. And I was really heartened to discover that a lot of authors don't plot before they start because that to me felt more like songwriting, the way that I write songs. Um, And that made me think, oh, maybe I could do this because I sort of thought if I had to, if if there was some – rule that all authors would sit down and work out everything that's going to happen before they started. I thought, oh, I don't, I just didn't want to do that. Like I wanted it to <laughs> unfold for me and I felt like that would be more enjoyable for me mm. as a writer. And I think the pace of revelation in Goodwood um, 
makes it clear that it sort of it is it feels as if Jean is finding these things out as, as it's going along, which um, was really lovely for me to have, mm. sort of have her have these things unfold and, and for the information to get to her in so many different ways. Mm-mm. So you've done a great job at capturing the personalities of various residents in Goodwood. Did you know all of these characters in advance or did some appear as you wrote then as well? Oh, they definitely appeared as I wrote. Mm-hmm. Um, and I felt like they just kind of appeared weirdly fully formed in some, in most cases <laughs> um, because I wanted it to feel like a really three-dimensional populated town, even though it's a small one. But the, yeah. the residents, I think, to me, they felt very – they feel very alive in my mind um, and they just kind of crop up and there they were and they had like a little backstory and – I could feel what they look like and what they might say and how they might say it. Mm. And that was really fun. I mean, that was just, yeah, it's just the stuff of, the stuff of fiction. <laughs> Did you have to kill many darlings? Because, of course, when you're writing and you're not sure where you're going, you can write yourself potentially down the wrong path or create characters that become irrelevant ultimately. Did you have to kill many darlings in the end? Um, not, not so much in terms of entire characters, but definitely detail of characters, mm-hmm. backstories of characters, ways that people, scenes the way people are interacting, like that, that kind of stuff got paired back, um, yeah. without, without, with it still having, like a, I think a lot of sort of idiosyncratic charm, hopefully, mm-hmm. but yeah, definitely, um, there was definitely some darlings that were killed in my mind but I think that's you know that is a necessary a necessary thing so tell us about your journey to publication did you write the entire first draft before you sent it and it like what to an agent a publisher how did just tell us about how it all worked well when I was in the initial stages of writing my draft Mm. um I didn't really tell anybody that I was still wanting to do it because I just felt like I didn't want to be that person who says I'm writing a novel and then doesn't actually write the novel because it ends up being too hard, which I thought along the way so many times I thought, I don't know if I'm going to finish this. Like I just wasn't sure. But, um, I mean, I was determined on one hand but also lacked confidence on the other and switching into an entirely different medium, I often thought, what am I doing? (laughs) But... Um, I did mention it to my mum that I was working on it and she is f- old friends from the 70s with a publisher called Richard Walsh who's an ass- oh, yes. a consultative publisher with at Alan Alan Unwin. Yeah, yeah. He, gave so- me one- he gave me my first break. One oh, of my there first you go. breaks. Yeah, back well, in the he gave me he gave me my first break too. Yeah. <laughs> um, in that, he said that he'd be willing to have a coffee with me and discuss mm. my ideas and my story. And so I said, yes, please. At that point, I had no idea how important he was. And I oh, think if I if I did, yes. I would probably would have been more intimidated. But I just thought he was like my mum's old friend. And then <laughs> only in the last – so seriously, only in the last few months I was – I, because when we talk, we don't talk about his career. We talk about we were talked about Goodwood right. really in the entire time, and now we talk about other people's books, books we're enjoying. Yeah. And he's very modest, so he didn't say, "Oh, look at these amazing things that I've done." He didn't oh, yes. really men- he never mentioned any of it. And so I later learned that he is, you know, has had a very ex- he's a doyen you know, of Australian yeah, publishing. He's, yeah, he's had this incredible life in publishing, which I'm glad that I didn't know at that point. But anyway, we had. We had the coffee a couple of times. Um, he asked if I could send him stuff that I was working on and was just really encouraging of me. And I, I, in in that I'm forever grateful because I feel like he 
his encouragement really helped me to keep moving in times when I was feeling like I wasn't sure if it was good. He would tell me, this is really good, keep working. And that's that really was invaluable to me and probably I think to most writers to have someone feedback on your work in a positive way and just tell you to keep keep at it. Yeah. So, yeah, and that was really – and I he also told me really straight up that he wouldn't bullshit me, you know, which because I, I was like, don't be, be nice because you know my yeah. mum in the 70s. <laughs> but yeah. he, he assured me that he wouldn't – that he wasn't in the business of doing that and that would be a waste of everyone's time. So I said, okay, that's good to know. But mm-hmm. so, yeah, I guess working with him, um, I worked sort of with him, sent, sending him, he got the entire first draft and he told me, you know, he gave me some feedback. He didn't do any editing or like really in-depth stuff, but he just told me to put it in a drawer and leave it for at least three months was his advice. Wow. Um, and I said, okay, cause my baby was coming and I said, look, I've this, and he said, I really, you know, he loved it, but he was also like, you know, obviously it needs a second draft. So I said, okay, I put it in the drawer and plan to go back to it in three months. And then 10 months later, I, I, after I'd gotten through that intensive period of being a new mother, um, I got it out again and worked really feverishly on finishing the second draft, which took you know, several months. Um, but on that, on that second draft, what did you, you, you parked it for 10 months. What did you think in your head, like what you were going to change and revise? What, how did you know what to change well, for your second I, draft? First of all, I printed it out because Richard told me to print it out. He said, you definitely need to read it off paper, not off a screen because mm-hmm. it totally changes the way you'll read it. Um, yep. which I thought was really good advice. I have another friend who's a novelist called Peggy Frew who wrote a beautiful book called Hope Farm. Um, and she told me to print it out in a different font because I'd read it differently oh. again and totally in, in a different font that I've been working with the entire time. So I did both of those things and mm-hmm. it really was startling because it didn't look familiar to me. It didn't look like my <laughs> the thing that I was used to working on. And wow. I was able to uh, – and because it had been 10 months as well and I'd been through this really intense change in my life, I was really able to get a good amount of distance from it. So I sat down and read the whole thing from cover to cover and it was very obvious the things that were really working and very obvious the things that were really not working and I thought, okay, it's, it's you know. So I just wrote notes as I went along um, and then – Actually, no, the first time I read it, I just read it and just had it in my mind a second and then I read it all through again and wrote notes because I kind of had known what was happening now Um, and then basically went through and applied all of my notes to writing a second draft, like from beginning to end in a chronological sense. Um, And there was pretty much not one printed page that didn't have scribbles on it, (laughs) entire things crossed out or things circled. You know, it was – I really dissected it. Um, and then when the second draft was finished, I showed that to Richard and he, there was some, there was some things that still were kind of standing out a little and that the third draft, which was quite close to the second, when that was entirely completed, which is, you know, relatively close to the finished book. Um, that was when he took it to Alan and Unwin and said, mm. here's a finished third draft. That was wow. at the point that, that I got a publishing contract and they, they said they wanted to publish it. Fantastic. So one of the thing that's one of the things that stands out in the writing is your interest in unusual similes and metaphors. Now, was that something that you worked on deliberately, or is that just is that like just how the way you think? <laughs> um, I think if I think it's just the way I think. I mean, like in terms of my songwriting, I think that's probably always something that 
that has um, that I've done. I think, mm. um, and I am interested in the, the kind of that free association that the mind does. That's why I was interested in making a children's album because I wanted to only exist in that kind of childlike free associative world when I was mm. writing lyrics, which was really fun. But in writing Goodwood, yeah, I think it's just the way I think. Okay. So <laughs> you, you're successful as a songwriter and a musician and, um, you know, you're acclaimed with uh, nominated for awards and all that sort of stuff. This is totally different, even though it's still part of the creative process. Writing a novel is obviously totally different. Were you nervous about branching into a completely different area. It's not like you were just going to, you know, do jazz or, you know, like, you know what I mean? <laughs> Probably more nervous to do jazz, to be honest. No, <laughs> no, look, I was, I still am. Like I still feel that kind of apprehension about it because it's only, it's only nearly out and I, yeah, I feel that quite strongly. Although as it went along, as the process went along and I, I got to a point where I was, you know, finished it enough to want it to be published and to be happy for it to be published, mm. which, you know, I think any author in their first draft, you'd never, you feel like you're never going to get to at that point. And I was, you know, I was amazing to finally get to that point, but I still definitely have a lot of, um, I guess, yeah, a lot of kind of nervous energy around people that I know that I know have good taste in books reading it for example and like mm. thinking oh you're gonna like it I mean I'm, some of them I just know aren't because I know they taste well enough to know that Goodwood's not going to be for them but right. and then, but there's been some surprises too along the way of people that I wouldn't have thought um would connect with it who who have which is really it's amazing it's like kind of it's just a very different experience especially because it's such a it's so solitary the whole process was just incredibly solitary so to then bring that out into the world feels a lot more daunting than by the time your album's finished, so many people have heard these songs, you know, that have worked with yes. you along the way, that it's just, it's just a different thing. Right. And so do you think that having a profile makes it a little bit more difficult to try things? Um, sometimes because there, there, might be, there might be some perceived kind of negativity against that against people switching into something different um but I think maybe as a songwriter that's it's just you know it's, it's in the same realm in a way um and I have so, always been really driven by writing lyrics right yes um, so maybe that helps mm-hmm. um how, how if you you wrote this while you were pregnant was that your first child Yes, yes, she is my first child. Okay, and so do you, do you have more since? <laughs> no, <laughs> you I don't. Another book in the meantime, you know. No, I don't. She's only because, just turned two, so no. Okay, so I know that you've discussed the book "Creativity in and um, Motherhood and Creativity" by Rachel Power, um, who we've also interviewed in a in another episode. Do you find it difficult or to balance your family life with that of being a writer and a musician now and, you know, all of the, you know, creative things that you want to pursue? Yeah, like so difficult. It really is. Like it's – I mean, but I think that's just – it is – it would just be the same for anyone that that wanted to be working. You know, like it's – I guess mm. I don't even know if it really, it really matters what kind of work it is, but it definitely is difficult to find that – balance I think for me it's when I feel like very inspired to work creatively Mm. it's it's it becomes kind of 
almost torturous to not be able to do that when you're mm. feeling like you really want to do that. Yes. Um, but it also gives you this different way of looking at it, whereas when you do have the time it's so precious that I felt much more able to switch straight into that zone without kind of meandering around and putting things off and wandering right. up this, to the shops and doing a load of washing. And like these things that I used to kind of procrastinate quite a lot during yeah. my creative time. And I always felt, I always felt that and was conscious of that, but couldn't quite change it in terms of songwriting. I'd be, you know, go through these intensely creative phases, but I wasn't someone who, you know, when you read books about being creative, you're supposed to every day do some little activity or something. Like that. I just wasn't like that. But writing this novel, like Goodwood, was so consuming for me. But also, just I, I was, it was so immersive, and I was so obsessed with it. I felt like it gave me this whole new creative energy that I didn't realize I had in terms of like my discipline and output. Mm-mm. So, what are you working on now? What's next? Have you got? Um, are you writing your second novel? Yeah, I've started it and wow. I just read I just read today over the first sort of few chapters that I've written. Um it's again it's a, it's just finding the time because I'm just finishing my my record which is going to come out in February and that we're in the mixing phase of that at the moment, which is my least favorite phase of making a record, which is, involves making a lot of sort of finicky decisions, which I don't enjoy. But mm-hmm. um yeah, it's just really finding the time. Like I'm sort of longing to just be able to have endless time to write and just trying to create some of that time would would be good. Is it set in a small town? It is set in the town of Cedar Valley, which is mentioned a handful of times in Goodwood. It's a town south of Goodwood. So it's a similar locale um, and it's a year later. It's in 1993. And I'm very interested in that, just extending that kind of world. I wasn't ready to leave it. And at this point, it's a very different, it's a very different story, um, but is it a yeah, standalone story or is it part of um, the series? I don't know at this point. I, I, I'm as going into it. I think yes, it will be a standalone ser- um, standalone story. But I also I do love the idea of you know tr- trilogies or quartets. You know, like mm. I'm a big as a reader. I really love that. Like I loved when I got into crime fiction. I loved James Elroy's L.A. Quartet, and I loved. Um, there's a, there's four Billy Bob Holland novels by James Lee Burke, um, which form a kind of quartet of the same character, which I just love. Like, you know, I, I think you often want to go back and keep reading those stories. Yeah. Um, so I'm not sure how related it will be, but there will definitely be some crossovers. And finally, what are some tips for aspiring writers who want to get published one day? Perhaps you can think of like your top three tips or something. Oh, can I? My top three tips. Um, <laughs> I would, well, I would recommend reading, you know, either books or essays or whatever you can get your hands on from other writers about their process. I found that really fascinating just because I didn't know where to start and I found that a really good way to begin. Mm. Um, I have a screenwriter friend in Melbourne who rec- who recommended On Writing by Stephen King, which is yeah. a really great kind of how-to manual, which I read very interestedly cover to cover. Mm. Um, but there's all kinds of there's all kinds of stuff, you know, writers writing about their writing process, which I think is a really good place to start and then to try everything until you work out what, what that is for you, like what works for you. Yeah. Um, also, I, I mean, obviously having someone like Richard, someone who is in the industry to give honest feedback, I think is really invaluable. Um, 
and the other thing is just to keep going, you mm. know, to keep writing and writing and writing because you get some, you got to write a lot of bunch of crap to get some good stuff sometimes. <laughs> I mean, it's the same with songs. Like I've just dipped so many songs that just weren't, like they were okay, but they weren't, I could just feel that they weren't probably going to make it onto the album. And, but I'm glad that I wrote them because when I came upon the song that I knew was going to go on the record, then that, you can feel it, that kind of tingling feeling when you know that it's working. Um, so, yeah, I guess to try not to lose confidence all the time and keep writing. Wonderful. Great advice. And on that note, thank you so much for your time today, Holly. Thank you for having me. Well, that was a great interview. Like I'm fascinated by that, you know, sort of jump from songwriting to long form mm-hmm. and how, how that sort of you know how she went about that I think that's really interesting all these multi-talented people you know it's amazing isn't it and well, of course it is. I- and that book's going so well like I'm seeing it, it everywhere yes, it is everywhere so you know it's it's definitely a, a thing so you know well done Holly you know what I think's a little bit weird and kind of makes me feel really old because I grew up <laughs> because Holly Throsby is the daughter of Margaret Throsby who of course is the radio announcer um, and journalist and acclaimed author and all of that sort of stuff and um, I grew up listening to Margaret Throsby because she was always on at breakfast time when my dad had the little transistor radio on and and um I just grew used to to hearing her and I just think it's really weird now that her daughter is <laughs> as a successful, you know, um, songwriter, not everything. Mm. And it just makes me feel old somehow. Oh, Val. Does, You'll be all right, darling. Weird? <laughs> yeah. It's it's funny though. It is it, I always say that it's, you know, you don't you don't actually ever really feel old. You don't feel your age until you until you sort of talk to other people's children, even your yeah. own children, like my, even with my own kids. But when I see, uh, that's why it's why adults always say to you as a kid, you know, when you when you sort of you meet an adult that you haven't seen for a while, like Auntie May or whatever, yes. and they just go, "Wow, you know, you've really grown." What they're actually saying is, "Oh my God, I'm getting old," because <laughs> it's that growth in kids that really makes you see the age of your, you know, you can see five years in a kid, whereas you can't necessarily see five years in yourself. And it's, it's a really interesting um, phenomenon. And I see it with, you know, with my kids and with their friends all the time. And it's just Mm. like, oh, how did you get to be this big? I don't Mm. get it. So you're just having that same experience with Holly Throsby. Yes, I think so. Yeah. I'll have to, I'll have to get over it. Did you say that to her? Did you say, my, you've grown? How did you get to be so big? That's what they say to you. It's really funny. No, I didn't say that. I held myself back. Well done. (laughs) So let's move on to our app pick for the week, shall we? Oh, we haven't had one of these for a while. What have you got? This is a good one. So for a number of reasons, and some people may already have this app, but it's called Pocket. And I've had it for a while. So you can find it at getpocket.com. And basically, you know how sometimes you're tooling around on the internet and you come across an interesting link that you just don't have time to read it now because you're on your way somewhere or you're doing something. So rather than, you know, in the past I would get the link and email it to myself and hopefully remember it later or, you know, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Instead, you can just simply store it in pocket. So it's like putting oh. something in your pocket, right? Mm-hmm. And then when you're ready, like if you're in the car or you're at the doctor's waiting room or something, you can get out your pocket app 
and look at all of the li- all of the links that you've saved, and mm-hmm. that in itself isn't that innovative. But what you can do, because I do spend time in the car traveling, is that you can get all of the links that you've put in your pocket and then you, if particularly if it's a long article, I did this just this morning at the cafe, right, mm-hmm. with my little Bluetooth headset, not, not headset, little Bluetooth earpiece, and you can just press the link and, in pocket and say, read it to me. So you can oh. say, listen to it, and it will read you out the article. Wow. So, yeah, really how handy. Ac- how in the accurate car. is it? Oh, well, 100% accurate. What do you mean? It just reads the words. Reads it out to you? Yeah. And it, even the only bit that sounds odd is when it's reading the heading, the heading mm-hmm. and like who it's by. And you know how sometimes there's just other bits at the top that before it gets into the guts of the story. But once it starts reading the actual article, it's like someone's reading it to you. Wow, that's amazing. Mm. So very handy, particularly if you do spend time in the car or you don't want to, you can't actually read what's on your device at the time. So mm. Pocket, there you go, and mm. you'll find it there at get, getpocket.com, and it's free. Wow. Yes, there you go. I think mm. there is a paid version, but I just use the free version. Free version. Okay. Mm. Anyway, let's move on. We're almost at the end of our episode, Al. What have you got coming up in the, um, you know, coming weeks? Oh, well, that's quite exciting because I'm actually, um, you know, once the structural edit's done and before I start NaNoWriMo, which of course begins on the 1st of November, um, I am putting together a, like a workshop version of my Build Your Author Platform course. Um, and it's Ooh. going to be, it's a three-hour workshop and I'm doing it um, at Wollongong Library for the South Coast Writers' Centre. And yeah. I'll put the link in the show notes in case you would like to come along uh, to the workshop and ask me all the questions you would like to ask me. Um, so it's kind of like a, an introductory version because in three hours it's pretty difficult to actually get the whole, you know, yes. workshop platform built and et cetera. But um, if you are sort of, you know, looking to expand your platform or to uh, to start a platform, I think it would be a great, um, a great introduction and I'm going to cover off as much as I can, obviously. And obviously I will be there to answer uh, any questions that you and might when have. Is it? When is it again? Oh. Good question. Did I say that? No. It's on the 12th of November. It's at Wollongong Central Library. It starts at 10. It finishes at 1. And I will put the link in the, in the show notes for anyone who would like to come along and join me for that workshop. Fantastic. Um, and and I also – sorry. Al, I would just like to interject and say that Al is awesome live as a presenter. <laughs> She's also awesome, you know, not live, but – but live as presenter, so you, if you are in the area uh, at Wollongong um, on the 12th of November, check her out. If you're not in the area and want uh, Al's advice on how to build your author platform, of course, go to Al's course at writerscentercomau slash platform. Sorry, mm. you continue, Al. Well, I just wanted to, it was actually, I was just segueing away from myself and into a big thank you to um, to everyone who's reviewed the Mapmaker Chronicles on Amazon and Goodreads. You might remember yeah. a couple of weeks ago, um, I just mentioned in passing that the book is coming out or the three books of the Mapmaker Chronicles are coming out in the US in June next year and uh, just asked if anyone had read them and was, um, you know, liked them, that's always a good thing, um, if they'd be willing to drop a review into Goodreads or Amazon for me. And I just wanted to say thanks so much much to everyone who's done that um and if you do have a chance to leave a review it would be much appreciated yeah fantastic see how um, i did that 
Yeah, I saw how you did that. And it's, they're, <laughs> they're such awesome books, so they deserve fantastic reviews. Um, in the meantime, I will not be at the South Coast Writers Workshop. Where will you be? Uh, I'll be in Sydney. However, we are, I'm very excited, but a bit busy at the moment. And, and after I recover from the conference that I've just been on, I'll be going full pelt into, well, we're building a new online portal, uh, learning portal <clears throat> for students and um, it's going to be awesome. I'm very excited about it. So people will have a great place that they can log in and get access to all of their courses, be able to ask questions, all that kind of stuff. And one of the first courses that is going to launch on that platform on the, I think it's the 7th of November, is called Inside Publishing. And if you're even remotely thinking about uh, public, you know, getting your book published, I think that this is vital to understand understand the publishing process, to understand about copyrights, to understand about rights in, in different territories and different languages because it's actually a little bit complicated, but we explain it in a very, you know, clear way. Um, mm. And uh, there is a special pre-launch offer, so you should go to writercenter.com.au slash publishing to register for that pre-launch offer because that it means you will get a pre-launch offer of a very special price that will not be repeated after uh, after launch. So get in there definitely way before the 7th of November so you get that notification. So, uh, and just go. as an update, because I have been asked uh, by several people about this, the Make Time to Write oh, yes. course is going to be launching very soon after that. It's on yes. its way. Um, so, yeah, because there's way. been a few people have been saying, when when's it coming out? It's, well, coming. it's coming soon. It's very, coming. Yeah, very soon. Yeah. All right. Fantastic. Well, thank you, everyone, for uh, – for joining us this week. You know, we know that you have other choices and that you can go listen to other podcasts, but we're really grateful that you have chosen to stick our voices in your ears. <laughs> spend some time with us. It's lovely. And spend some time with us. Where do we find you online, Al, if people want to connect with you? Uh, you'll find me uh, at my website, alisontate.com. You'll find me on Twitter at, at altait, A-L-T-A-I-T, and you will find me on Facebook and Instagram at alisontatewriter. And you, Val, where do we find you? Uh, you'll find me at Valerie Koo, that's K-H-O-O, on Twitter and Instagram and just for, search for Valerie Koo in Sydney on Facebook and it'd be great to connect with you. We'd love to hear from you and thank you so much for listening and we look forward to chatting to you again next week. We do. Bye. Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find the show notes at writercentre.com.au slash podcast or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter at writerscentre.com.au slash news where you'll find writing resources, giveaways, competitions and much more.